Chapter 13 of Cherry Ames Island Nurse. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Cherry Ames Island Nurse by Helen Wells. Chapter 13 The Wreck. Cherry woke, startled, to find that the candle had long since burned out and only a blob of wax remained in the holder. While she slept, daylight had crept into the room. The journal lay open in her lap to the page where she had left off reading. She turned her head to look at her patient and saw Sir Ian gazing at her with a fatherly smile. "'Did my heart good to see ye sleeping like a bairn,' he commented. Cherry grinned back at him sheepishly and rubbed her eyes. "'I was reading, and all of a sudden—' Her voice trailed off. Into her mind leaped her worry over Tammy. She must find out at once whether he had been found. She was on the point of springing from her chair when Sir Ian's calm tones brought her back to herself. "'You fell asleep,' Sir Ian was saying. "'I slept like a top myself. And I feel grand. I'm going to get up.' "'No, you mustn't,' Cherry admonished. "'It's too early. Goodness, what time is it?' She looked at her watch. It was not quite seven o'clock. There were sounds of footsteps in the hall, and, in a moment, Dr. Mackenzie thrust his tousled head inside the doorway. His face was gray with fatigue, his clothes rumpled, but he appeared in good spirits. Barometers rising and the storm's practically over, he announced. Then he said to Cherry, Tess told me I'd find you here. And to Sir Ian, What are you doing awake at this hour? "'Why shouldn't I be after a long night's rest?' retorted the mine-owner. "'Did you ever see such a contrary old Scotsman?' Dr. Mack asked Cherry, with a wink of an eye bloodshot from lack of sleep. "'The storm and turmoil kept everyone else on the island up.' "'If ye are speaking for yourself, Mackenzie,' said Sir Ian, "'I can well believe it. "'From the looks of ye, I'd vow ye'd not touched head to pillow in a week.' "'It seems that long,' the other agreed ruefully. "'Well, I'm glad to see you so chipper, Sir Ian.' He walked over to the bed to have a good look at his patient. "'Color's good,' he commented. Then he took Sir Ian's pulse and nodded with satisfaction. "'How do you feel?' he asked. "'Hungry,' replied Sir Ian. "'Good, but how do you feel, generally speaking?' insisted the doctor. "'If ye cannot tell I feel grand this morn,' the other replied in his richest Scottish burr, with a wicked little grin, I dinna think you are muckle of a medical man. With that, he tossed back the covers and swung his long pajama-clad legs off the bed and began putting on his robe. Sir Ian has been giving every indication of getting well, Cherry replied, including behaving in a very independent manner. He was busy for hours in the library yesterday. Are ye through discussing me, demanded Sir Ian, glaring at them, but with a merry twinkle in his eye. I'd count it a favor for the both of ye to get out and let a man dress. Seeing that by your own expert diagnosis you are feeling strong and well, sir, said Dr. Mack, with exaggerated stiffness, I am no longer in doubt about asking a favor of you and of Cherry. His tone changed, and he became completely serious. Cherry, you did get some rest, didn't you? Yes, I did, doctor, Cherry replied. "'Ask your favor and be done,' Sir Ian said bluntly. "'We need a nurse badly,' Dr. Max said. 
Nurse Cowan, Meg, and the others are pretty worn out, although we all manage to get a little rest off and on. "'What's happened?' asked Sir Ian, instantly alert. The doctor told briefly of a night spent caring for casualties of the storm. A small pleasure craft had capsized and the six aboard had been rescued and brought to the hospital for treatment. There were a number of serious accidents. People had been injured by flying objects and fallen wires. A good many had had to be treated for exposure and shock. As a result, the hospital had been jammed. Meg had worked alongside with Bess Cowan, several practical nurses, and volunteers. Between them all, they had been able to cope with the situation. "'Why didn't you call me, Dr. Mackenzie?' asked Cherry. "'I would have been glad to help.' "'I would have, Nurse Ames, but this telephone, along with a lot of others, was out of order,' he explained. "'This morning I had to have some professional nursing help. That's why I drove up from the hospital to see how things were here.' If it's possible, I'd like you to come along with me right away. Don't worry about me, Sir Ian said. I'll be all right. Tess and Nora surely can do anything that's needed. Nurse Lass, do ye want to go help in the emergency? Cherry nodded emphatically. Of course I do, she declared. What is it, Dr. Mack? Briefly, he explained. I received a call from the lighthouse just before I came here. Its telephone has been in operation throughout the storm. A fishing boat, the keeper reported, had piled up on the rocks off Karst Point. The Coast Guard have been trying since the boat was sighted earlier this morning to bring the crew ashore. But the waves have been so high, they've not made much headway up to now. We're going to have to give some medical treatment right there on the beach as the men are brought ashore. Fishing boat, asked Cherry, suddenly suspicious that it might be the heron. Do you know the name of the boat? The doctor shook his head. No, I didn't ask. I'll get ready, Cherry said quickly. Picking up the secret journal from the table, she crossed the hall to her own room, where she put the book away in the drawer with the leather pouch. She heard Dr. Mack extracting a promise from Sir Ian that he would not overdo and would eat the bland foods prescribed at regular intervals. Remember, you are still on a carefully planned regimen until you graduate to the usual three meals a day, warned the doctor. I'll bear it in mind, Sir Ian promised. Now get along about your business and leave me to bathe and dress. Cherry got her raincoat, for it was damp and misty out, put on her rubbers and rain hat, and joined Dr. Mack in the hall. She called back to Sir Ian that she would be home as soon as she could. You'd better have some breakfast, the doctor cautioned her as they went downstairs, and I could do with a cup of hot coffee myself. Anxious to find out if Tess had heard anything more of Tammy, Cherry sprinted toward the kitchen. "'Take it easy, take it easy,' the doctor said, trying to keep up with her. Tess looked up from stirring the oatmeal mush as they entered. Anticipating Cherry's question, she shook her head in a woebegone way and said, "'They've now found the boy. His grandma, Janet Cameron, poor woman, is fair daft with worry. She's out there somewhere with the men, searching.' I couldn't stop her. She would go. What's all this about Janet Cameron's grandson? asked Dr. Mackenzie. Tess made them sit down at the table in the kitchen to eat their breakfast before she would answer his question. Then, over orange juice, a bowl of mush and milk, and hot coffee, Cherry, at Tess's insistence, began the story of Tammy, and the cook finished it. She wound up with the prediction that not only poor Tammy and his granddaughter, old Jock, would never be seen again, but that now poor Janet, his grandma, would either catch her death of cold or fall to her death over the cliffs. 
Cherry felt her eyes begin to smart with unshed tears, but Dr. Mackenzie took an optimistic view. I know that boy, Tammy, he said, and he's smart as a whip. He can take care of himself on this island as well as any man. He's probably perfectly safe with his grandfather somewhere. As for the two being kidnapped by the crew of the Heron, that sounds ridiculous. Tess sniffed. I'll not argue with you, Dr. Douglas Mackenzie, she said smugly. They had good reason to kidnap Jock Cameron and Tammy, so it isn't ridiculous at all, Dr. Mack, Cherry declared, siding with Tess. Mr. Cameron discovered that the crew has been smuggling something out through Rogue's Cave. I have good reason to believe it's silver. Silver, cried Dr. Mackenzie, starting to laugh and choking over his last swallow of coffee. Don't tell me you don't know the story of the silver in Rogue's Cave. You know about the silver? asked Cherry, incredulously. Of course, replied the doctor, still sputtering with suppressed laughter. I'm surprised that someone hasn't told you that old story before this. Cherry's face must have shown clearly her utter astonishment, for he hastened to correct himself. No, I don't suppose you would hear of it. Tess walked over with the pot of coffee to fill up the doctor's cup. She said stiffly, Ye were about to speak, Dr. Mack, of the men. Ah, uh, what blackguards they were, who salted the old mine with silver. Weel, tis a common enough story in the village, but tis na heard in Barclay House. Neither is it one that's told where a Barclay might hear it. Then, Tess, I shall tell it to Miss Ames on the way to Cars Point, retorted the doctor. It does the Barclays good, as well as everyone else, to learn to laugh at themselves once in a while. During the exchange between Tess and Dr. Mack, Cherry quietly ate her oatmeal and drank her coffee. Already worried about Tammy and old Jock, she knew that Dr. Mack's story would send her spirits even lower. She had only a vague idea of what salting a mine meant, but it was associated in her mind with nothing particularly pleasant. I'm ready to go if you are, Dr. Mack, she said, getting up. She praised Tess's oatmeal as being just right. Thank you, Tess, for making me eat one of your delicious breakfasts, said the doctor. Let's go, Cherry. Tess promised to leave word at the hospital or the lighthouse if she learned anything new about Tammy. The cook had little hope, however, that telephone service at Barclay House would be restored soon. The lines are doing a great tangle of wires, Ramsay, the gardener, told me when I saw him early this morning, she reported. So tis not likely you'll be hearing from me at all. Cherry and the doctor went outside to his ford. It's good of you to come, Dr. Mack said once they were on the road to Cars Point Lighthouse. You know it's no part of your duty to do this. So long as my patient is all right and you, his doctor, say it's all right, Cherry told him, smiling. I would not be much of a nurse if I did not do what I could in an emergency like this. Dr. Mack gave her a grateful smile in return. You're a real nurse, Cherry Ames, he complimented her, and a wonderful person. As they bumped along the road beside the cliffs, Cherry asked if he had forgotten that he was to tell her about the silver in Rogue's Cave. Certainly not, he answered, and began. You've heard of George Barclay, Sir Ian's brother, of course. He's the one who lives off the fat of the land in England. Cherry told him she had. Well, he's a later edition of a George Barclay who was born a number of years after the old mine was closed. The early George, like this later one, was a spendthrift, and always in debt. Somehow or other, he made the acquaintance of a slick grafter, a silver prospector who had been fooling around in the silver mines in Mexico. This grafter persuaded Meg and Lloyd's great-great-uncle George Barclay to let him explore Rogue's Cave for gold and silver, promising to make George rich quick. 
the grafter spent a lot of time in the cave then came out one day whooping and hollering that he'd found silver well sir when great-great-uncle george went in there with the grafter sure enough there were all these rocks of native silver uncle george rewarded the man handsomely the grafter left the island in a hurry before uncle george could discover that the rocks of native silver had been planted there in fact the fellow had brought the few rocks from mexico for the purpose in short great-great-uncle george barclay had been played for a sucker to put it bluntly the grafter had salted the mine as it is called which was a common thing in those days and many a seasoned miner or even an old prospector was taken in by a cleverly salted mine cherry sighed deeply i suppose sir ian's father simply found some of these rocks too when he was a boy she said to herself the excitement which had been building up inside her ever since she and tammy had found the leather pouch in the tower room collapsed within her like a spent balloon she really had nothing at all to tell meg and lloyd now and there probably would be no need to tell them about the disappearance of tammy and old jock for the news would have filtered through to them from some of the islanders by this time cherry said oh dear with a sigh that went to the soles of her nurse's shoes did you say something asked dr mackenzie no i was just thinking what a joke it is about the silver she answered it's such an old joke it has whiskers on it she laughed without humor you don't make it sound cheerful observed the doctor now come on nurse ames just think of great-great-uncle george as a gay dog with much money and little wit who paid for a needed lesson from another gay dog with plenty of wit and no money how's that for an early day mackenzie gem of an aphorism cherry laughed this time with good humor the island looked different after the storm in the pale yellow of a sun obscured by clouds everything appeared tossed and tumbled about as in a giant washing machine the trees and bushes were bent and twisted buildings displayed broken windows like missing teeth a fallen chimney or wind-ripped cornices from the sea came the pounding of the waves upon the rocks and sandy beaches they were some distance from Cars point when they could see the crowd which had gathered on the shore near the lighthouse presently they could make out the canadian lifeguard cutter standing by offshore drawing near cherry and the doctor saw the fishing boat clothed in spray stationary on the rocks where she had been left by the high tides of the storm around the vessel the waters boiled and foamed the coast guard had finally got a line aboard the boat from the shore to the bridge of the ship and had rigged the breeches buoy they had started to bring the crew ashore as cherry and dr mack drove up there were an ambulance stretchers and folding cots blankets all in readiness there were a chest with first aid and other medical supplies and plenty of warm water soap and sterile cloths at one side a group of women had set up a field kitchen and were serving hot coffee tea and sandwiches to the lifesavers later hot drinks and food would be given to the rescued with the exception of the men on the coast guard cutter those manning the breeches buoy and the lighthouse keeper the lifesavers were volunteers citizens of balfour scarcely anyone noticed cherry and the doctor as they walked over to where the men were hauling in the first of the crew aboard the wrecked boat every head was turned to watch the man in the breeches buoy skimming over the white-capped waves in a device that resembled a baby's walker attached to an overhead cable as soon as the fisherman was near enough for cherry to get a good look at him she exclaimed oh doctor his left leg's broken her cry caused the crowd that had been watching silently to turn to look at her and the doctor 
People called greetings to the two of them. Here's Dr. Mac now, one of the bystanders called out. He's got Nurse Ames with him. By this time, everyone on the island knew Cherry Ames, Sir Ian's nurse, either by sight or from hearing about her. The crowd made way for the doctor and Cherry to go over to where the men were gently lifting the fishermen out of the buoy. Dr. Mackenzie signaled to two men with a stretcher, and the injured man was eased onto it. The man's face was distorted with pain. His trouser leg had been cut away, and a crude splint had been applied to the leg. As the doctor removed splint and bandage carefully, the man explained, The captain fixed me up after I broke it. The foot was turned outward, and the ankle and leg were badly swollen. The man winced as the doctor felt it very gently. What's your name? the doctor said. Jim Freeman, replied the other. I was sent ashore first because I was hurt worse than the rest. Well, I'm going to give you something to ease your pain, Dr. Mack told him, taking out his hypodermic needle. As he gave the injection, he went on talking. But that's a bad break, Mr. Freeman, and it will have to be x-rayed. I'm going to send you to the hospital in the ambulance. Cherry saw where the end of the broken bone had penetrated through the skin and knew it was a compound fracture. The doctor could not determine the extent of the injury without x-rays. The captain's attempt to splint and bandage the leg, although no doubt well-intentioned, had not been beneficial in this case. For a simple fracture where the bone was broken but not separated, a splint to hold the bone in place would have been effective. Cherry cleansed the wound and covered it with a loose bandage. Jim Freeman was wrapped warmly and sent off to the hospital where Nurse Cowan would take x-rays and look after him until the doctor came. The waters were gradually subsiding, although they remained too rough for the Coast Guard cutter to draw near enough to the wreck to take off the crew. However, the men at the breach's buoy worked more quickly, and one after the other of the bruised and battered men were brought ashore. Folding cots had been set up on the beach, and the men were placed on them. Those suffering from shock and exposure, or slight injuries, were warmly covered and given warm drinks by the women volunteers. The beach around the lighthouse soon took on the appearance of a hospital ward. Cherry and Dr. Mack worked together, treating the serious cases. A man with a dislocated shoulder took all the doctor's strength, with Cherry helping him, to get the end of the upper arm bone, the humerus, to snap back into its socket. Another had a severe bruise with much swelling and pain, which the doctor treated with one of the newly developed medicines for the purpose. The ship's cook had received a third-degree burn on his arms and hands when a kettle of boiling water overturned. Still another had an ugly cut along the side of his neck, which he had wrapped in a none-too-clean piece of cloth. He was pale from loss of blood. To the doctor's question if he had been in the armed forces and been immunized by an injection of tetanus toxoid against lockjaw, the man replied yes. Cherry removed the bandage very carefully, and the doctor took a look at the wound. As he was examining it, the lifesavers at the breeches buoy called out that the man they had been hauling ashore had collapsed. Doctor, please come quick, they cried. Think you can take care of this man with the cut? Dr. Mackenzie asked Cherry. Sew up the cut, give him an injection of toxoid. Since he has already been immunized against tetanus, all he needs is a booster shot. Cherry nodded. Yes, doctor, I know how. He handed her a bottle, the needle for the injection, and hurried off to the shore where the man lay immobile on the sand. Cherry bent over the man with the cut, who had been placed on a cot, to get a closer look at the wound. "'Fell on a piece of sharp metal of some kind on the boat during the storm,' he answered in response to her question of how he had received the bad cut. The edge of the metal had barely missed the jugular vein. 
Others on nearby cots who had come through relatively unscathed took up the story of the previous night. They had been coming up from St. John's. The storm had hit them when they were a mile or so north of the Cragmody Rocks at the southeast end of the island. I thought we were going to sink any minute, one of them said. The captain decided we couldn't come round and make it through the pass and into Balfour Harbor, so we headed north, only to be driven onto the rocks at Carse Point at the other end of the island. Cherry heard them talking, but her first attention was given to her work. She washed the long, deep cut with soap and water, then with warm water. From the little cylinder-like bottle the doctor had given her, she took sterile surgical thread and needle and neatly sewed the skin together. It was the first time that she had ever done such a serious cut alone, but she was so familiar with the technique that her fingers moved confidently. She was just finishing when the doctor passed with his patient on a stretcher. He stopped briefly, examined her work, and said, I couldn't have done better myself. Now I'm going to have to leave you in charge here for a while. The man who collapsed just now was the last man aboard. Name's Bangert. He's the captain. He's had a heart attack. I've given him an injection to ease the pain, but I must get him to the hospital and into the oxygen tent right away. Think you can look after the others? There are no serious injuries. I'll be back as soon as possible. I think I can manage, Dr. Mack, Cherry replied. I'll do my best. That's a pretty high rating in my book, Dr. Mackenzie said with a smile. No one could ask for more. And he went on to the ambulance with his patient. Cherry continued with her work, putting on a sterile pad over the injured area, then made a cravat type of bandage, which covered the injury and went over and around to hold the pad in place. She then gave him an injection, or booster dose of toxoid, as a safety measure, as the doctor had instructed her. A group of people had grown about the wounded, although everyone was standing back so as not to interfere with Cherry. They watched her with respect and admiration as she moved from one patient to another. While she went about her work, Cherry heard the group of islanders and the crew talking back and forth. She gathered that the Balfourians knew a good many of the crew, for they called the various fishermen by name. The fishermen gave only brief or evasive answers to the probing questions. Close by, Cherry heard one of the islanders and one of the crew in an exchange. "'I think ye said ye had thirty-six aboard, counting the captain,' said the islander. "'But I counted less than that brought ashore.' What became of the other poor lads? Did they drown? Probably, replied the other. Why, probably. Don't you know? persisted his questioner. The mate, Mr. Tweed, and some others lowered a boat and rowed for shore, came the answer. I don't think they could make it in the storm, so they probably drowned. I noticed the mate was missing, remarked the Balfourian. Wheel now. He may be alive, he and the others, the same as the rest of ye. The man paused. With his next words, Cherry's heart began to thump with excitement. The Balfourian continued, Ah, twould be a wonderful thing, this wreck, if every man jack aboard the heron was saved. Every man jack aboard the heron, thought Cherry. The heron? These men she was taking care of were members of the crew of the heron. But some were missing. The mate, Mr. Tweed, and some of the men had lowered a boat and rowed for shore. Had they been drowned? or had they reached shore safely? And what had become of old Jock, who had stowed away? How she managed to care for the rest of the heron's crew, who had slight bruises, scratches, and cuts, and sprains, she never knew, but apparently she did her job very well. When Dr. Mack returned that afternoon with the doctor and nurses from St. John's to relieve them, 
he was amazed to find all but a few of the men perfectly able to return on the sandy fergus to their homes in st john's dr max sent cherry back to barclay house saying that he had already sent meg home as well as nurse cowan to get some sleep he himself was going home and to bed before he dropped in his tracks the doctor and nurses from st john's who had arrived on the sandy fergus in response to his call were ready to take over for a day or two End of chapter 13